Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Jennifer Crumbly didn't pull the trigger that day, but she is responsible for those deaths. Jennifer Crumbly is on trial for the murders of four students in a shooting rampage at a Michigan high school in November of 2021. It was her 15-year-old son who pulled the trigger. But prosecutors are trying to hold her responsible for what they say is willful negligence of her son's deteriorating mental health and warning signs that he was contemplating violence. Here's Prosecutor Mark Keist. So this case is about, it's about Jennifer Crumley's willful disregard of the danger that she knew of. But her defense attorney, Shannon Smith, says Crumbly had no reason to believe her son, Ethan, was a threat. The evidence at trial is going to show you that Jennifer Crumbly did the best she could as a mother to a child who grew up into a teenager and had no way to know what was going to happen. Ethan Crumbly was sentenced to life in prison in December after he pleaded guilty to murder, terrorism, and other crimes. Joining me is criminal defense attorney Richard Kaplan of Kaplan Marino. Parents have been charged for the criminal acts of their children before. What makes this case novel? Well, I just think it's the premise that you're charging someone for a failure to act. I mean, it's just kind of rare in a criminal case that inaction is the basis of the crime. We just don't see that very much. So, you know, what we have is, you know, basically a circumstantial evidence case saying, hey, in hindsight, we're looking back and say, you should have known. And I think it's kind of a slippery slope when you start doing that, because you're holding people to a standard that really is hindsight. And so that that's kind of, in my mind, where it gets dangerous. Now, we can look at all the factors here, and there are quite a few. You know, I find so much of what's going on in this case cuts both ways. How do you mean it cuts both ways? Because the prosecution has introduced a lot of evidence so far, the trial's not over yet, that the mother failed to heed or do anything about these troubling warning signs that her son had mental health issues. Well, I've given that some thought. And, you know, there's such an issue in society today with mental health and you know, how vigilant we have to be. But there's a strong segment of the society that just doesn't understand mental health awareness. You know, they don't believe that going to get therapy is something that they normally do. And so you're now holding these people to a standard that, you know, in certain more rural areas, you know, people just don't address it that way. And I think at one point, the father had said, you know, to the the son, you just got to toughen up. And that's a lot of people believe that. Uh, and so, again, that in and of itself kind of cuts both ways. If she's ignorant on mental health, she's not really aware of what can be done to, to help. You know, you're criminalizing someone who's maybe just be ignorant. But the prosecution seems to be piling up evidence. I mean, it's almost heartbreaking in a way, sort of the son's 
cries for help, including a text where he said he was having hallucinations, basically. He was scared because demons were throwing bowls. Can you text back? He asked his mother. And his mother didn't text back. Again, she's going to testify, it's my understanding, and I don't know what her explanation is going to be. You know, whether she was caught up at work at the moment, whether she didn't know what to appropriately text back. I mean, we've all got that text of some sort or another where you look at it and you think, i got to think about this. You know, this is kind of strange. Texting is different than having a conversation. You know, I think we can all acknowledge that. And it may have been kind of like she didn't know what to do. I think we're going to hear from her, so that'll be very interesting. Yeah, her attorney said she's going to take the stand. And that's always risky. Here, there's a lot for the prosecution to cross her on. And plus, she has to hold it together to a certain extent. And she was sobbing audibly in the courtroom when the school surveillance video was shown. It's always a risk when your client takes the stand. And, you know, this kind of case is, does a jury like her? Does she come across as genuinely feeling terrible, feeling bad, seeing all this in hindsight, these warning signs, and in a sense, feeling guilty in the sense that she should have done more. But, you know, again, there's an ignorance to all this. And the jury believes that she's being honest, you know, that she just didn't see it the way you see it now. In hindsight, they may acquit her. I think she really just needs to be real. I mean, if they think there's crocodile tears, then she's done. Again, if the jury likes her, she has a chance. The prosecution has built this case where they sort of present different avenues for the jury to find culpability of the mother and also the father when he's tried in March. First, there's what we were talking about, the parents ignoring signs of his mental distress. And then they also have evidence where the parents were directly confronted with facts that sort of forecast the shooting. For example, there was a school meeting. And this is just hours before the shooting. And the parents were called in to discuss Ethan's disturbing drawings, which depicted a gun, the figure of a shooting victim, and the words blood everywhere. And so they've had school officials testify about that and say, A, the parents didn't say anything, but B, they didn't take him out of school. Yes. And again, we get that the school did not insist. You you kind of run into that again where I say things cut both ways. I mean, the prosecution's putting on their case, and look, these are good points, and I think they're building a strong circumstantial evidence case, but at the same time, the school saw this, and, you know, they gave them the option, and instead of saying, no, he's out of here until we figure out more. And so, you know, I think to some degree, you're going to see her lawyers kind of say, hey, the school didn't know better. The school sees him every day. There could have been some warning signs that went on at the school, too, and they failed to act in the same way. Again, it's that kind of hindsight is twenty twenty, and, you know, the defense is set. You can't hold somebody responsible for the unforeseeable. I mean, no one imagines, the unimaginable, that this is going to happen. You know, like I said, everything cuts two ways in this. The prosecutors are also presenting evidence of affirmative acts the parents took. Just four days before the shootings, the father bought Ethan this semi-automatic handgun used in the shootings, and his mother took him for target practice. That strikes me as the most incriminating evidence the prosecution has here. Again, it's not a good fact for the mom or for the dad. 
that they went and did this, especially with the warning signs. But the other side of it is they purchased the gun legally. I think in that area of Michigan, it's not uncommon that, you know, teenagers learn to shoot with their families. They took him to a shooting range, which is kind of a supervised area to learn to shoot. So there was some responsibility. Now, again, that cuts both ways. You're understanding the dangers of a gun. You're doing it the right way. You know, so it cuts a little bit of both ways. Apparently, I think they also purchased a lockbox for the gun. So, again, that's a two-way. You know, you're recognizing the dangers of a weapon, and that's why you have the lockbox. But then, of course, he knows the code to the box. So it's tough. But I think, you know, it's four days before, and with all the warning signs, I think that's probably the strongest evidence against her is, you know, taking him to the range. The parents fled after the shooting, and the prosecution is presenting that as consciousness of guilt, while the defense says they were going to come back for the arraignment. How important is that? Because in a lot of cases, judges will even instruct the jury that they can consider flight as evidence of consciousness of guilt. And that's certainly, I think, the instruction they may try to get, or certainly the inference the prosecution wants to make, is fleeing is a consciousness of guilt. But then again, you know, there's also a fear factor that they didn't want to stay at their home where they thought, you know, maybe one of these other parents are going to come by and, and do something. I mean, we don't know what she's going to say. So now the defense is arguing several things. You've mentioned some of them. And she's also trying to pin the blame on her husband. That's very convenient because he's not in the courtroom and can't answer back. And also on the school, which you refer to for failing to notify her about her son's problematic behavior. How effective might that be? On this one, there's a lot of factors. There's mom, there's dad, there's the school. And any one of them could have and should have done something. I think we all agree in hindsight that that's of course. But, you know, her side is, look, husband didn't do anything. He's the one who bought the gun. You know, school didn't do anything. They see him every day, and there was problematic behavior. And so now it's kind of like, hey, you're piling on on me. And, you know, I was just trying to do the best I can at being a good mother. And again, when the unimaginable happens, you can't say, oh, I should have known that was going to happen. Do you think this case could set a precedent Or is it just relegated to the facts of this case? These facts are fairly extreme. I think, you know, certainly the prosecution's trying to send a message here, not only to their local area, but it's the national news that, you know, parents can be held responsible. It gets to the ages, you know, he was at 16, 17. I mean, if it's a much younger child, for example, then you have a higher duty to keep the weapon safe versus, you know, a teenager. And again, in that environment, probably many teenagers shoot with their families. I mean, I think they would like to set a precedent uh, that parents, you better wake up and, you know, keep an eye on your kids because, yes, if your kid does something like this, you can be held responsible. Which side would you rather be on? Would you rather be the prosecutor or the defense attorney in this case? I've been a defense attorney for 35 years. That's what I know. <laughs> and again, this is one like, you know, in California, we have a jury instruction that says in a circumstantial evidence case, if there's two reasonable versions of the evidence, you must go with the one that points to not guilty. Now, Michigan doesn't have that particular instruction, but that's kind of, you know, what you want to argue is, look, there's an innocent story here, and then there's a guilty story here. But if both have reasonableness within them, then you have to go with not guilty. We'll see how the defense presents its case. The prosecution is expected to rest its case by Friday. Thanks for joining me, Richard. That's Richard Kaplan of Kaplan Marino. 
Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the judge called Elon Musk's $55 billion pay package an unfathomable sum, historically unprecedented and incredible. And then she voided it. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Elon Musk's $55 billion pay package, the largest in U.S. corporate history, is no more. A Delaware judge has voided it after asking the question, was the richest person in the world overpaid? And then 200 pages later, answering, yes, he was, with a lot of legal reasoning in between. In her opinion, Chancery Court Chief Judge Kathleen McCormick compared the pay package to a flawed car design, where Musk launched a self-driving process, recalibrating the speed and direction along the way as he saw fit, And when that process arrived at an unfair price, she granted the investors' request for a recall. Joining me is an expert in business law, Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. So she didn't hold back on her thoughts about his pay package, calling it an unfathomable sum, historically unprecedented and incredible. How much was about the size of the package and how much about the process that Musk and the board used to get there? Well, I don't think this conversation gets started unless we're talking about the size of the pay package, right? That's what puts so much at stake here. But you're correct. The opinion actually circulates around the process by which that pay package was approved, eventually circling around to talk about the size as well, kind of for reasons that are necessary for you know doctrinal purposes. And it's a long opinion. It's a, a logically ordered and rather meticulous opinion. And one can certainly understand why why Chancellor McCormick decided that she wanted to spend so much time and quite literally so much ink on this because the attention that this case has gotten and will get over the next uh, you know weeks to months I think is, is considerable and the question really is like where to situate a case that looks like such a 
kind of bizarre black swan case kind of within our established pantheon of cases involving executive compensation. And, and Chancellor McCormick does a lot of work in the opinion to try to do that, to sort of say, okay, here is the law as it has been developed in Delaware around these types of compensation contracts. And even though this one was a really big one, it doesn't mean it has different rules that apply to it. And I'm going to go ahead and go down that same template of rules, which is not terribly surprising, but when the decisions at every juncture have such large valuation swings, it can certainly be fraught with drama. And we definitely have seen drama since this case was decided and the opinion was released. So explain her analysis of the process of getting to the pay package and the board members being beholden to Musk. You know, there's no meaningful negotiation. There are a couple of moving parts here, um, but weirdly enough, there aren't that many moving parts here. The the case itself circulates within a fairly well-known strand of Delaware cases that deal with what, what happens when you have someone who's getting into some sort of a deal. It could be a compensation agreement. It could be something else that has a material financial conflict of interest, right? And, and when you are asking the company that you're a fiduciary of to then pay you more, you know, that's one version of a conflict of interest. Now, Delaware law, which uh, Chancellor McCormick is as expert, if not more expert than anyone else in, has different approaches depending on the type of person who's the defendant. And probably the most intense scrutiny that you can get is if you are someone who controls the company that's making this decision, in this case, the compensation decision. For controllers, you're under a much, much more powerful microscope in terms of the facts of the case and you know how they are evaluated by the judge than you would be if you were maybe just some random outside director who didn't have a big stake in the company. So the first juncture that Chancellor McCormick had to decide, and it's been in front of the Delaware Chancery Court three previous times, and each previous time her predecessors have avoided having to say whether Mr. Musk is a controller of Tesla. She finally gets to the point to say, uh, yes, he is a controller. I'm going to have to make that decision myself. Even though we've been able to skirt that decision in the past, it kind of has to be made right now. And notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Musk has only about 21 to 22% ownership of Tesla, which is what he had at the time, uh, he still is someone that for purposes of this decision was a controller. He still had sort of outsized influence over the decision-making apparatus inside the board. And that's a pretty critical juncture. I think a lot of people were sort of, you know, not terribly surprised that Elon Musk um, would be held by a court to kind of control what happens at Tesla. I think you pull any random person off the street, they'll probably say the same thing. But we had never actually had a judicial opinion that said that. And when you're under 50% ownership, um, it could cut either way. And so that was in many ways, like the big unanswered question that had gone kind of frustratingly unanswered for a long time. It would probably be really surprising to the average person that it was so hard for the Delaware courts to say that out loud. So where does that leave the judge in this analysis then? Once he's deemed to be a controller, then absent some way to fix it, 
he's under what is known as the entire fairness standard of review. So that is legalese for you better be able to show that both the process and the substance of this compensation package uh, didn't give the shaft to the company, that it was fair to the company. And that can be hard to do because when you bear the burden of, of proving that, unclear situations kind of get resolved against you. And so proving entire fairness is something that defendants usually try to avoid. And then that gives rise to kind of the last big moving piece in the liability part of this is, is there any way that you can avoid having to, to show the entire fairness of this particular package and maybe push that burden back on the plaintiffs? And the answer is yes, but only if you've somehow been able to figure out how to get approval from totally disinterested board members who say, yeah, we're, we're not dominated or controlled by you, but we think that this is fair, or by stockholders who are willing to vote, not affiliated stockholders who are willing to vote to approve it. And Tesla tried to do both of those things. They, they did have a compensation committee, but the compensation committee largely consisted of people that Chancellor McCormick found to be basically completely beholden to Mr. Musk and not really credible negotiators against him. And then when they went out for a, a stockholder vote, they told the stockholders, oh, there was this very, very independent and rigorous process that we went through in structuring this, when in fact, she found that that, that wasn't what they went through at all. So those are kind of the main moving pieces. And the opinion over 200 pages sort of takes you through the decision tree that sort of gets us to the point where Mr. Musk is going to have to carry a burden to show that a $56 billion pay package is entirely fair. And she finds that he failed to do that. And that's why, at the end of the day, she finds that this was a breach of fiduciary duties. And ultimately, his pay package is voided. It's forfeit. So what were the facts that she really considered in coming to this decision that Elon Musk was overpaid? So once we get to this question of asking, hey, is this a fair deal? There are two big ingredients to keep in mind. First of all, the way that this ended up getting set up, he's the guy that had to prove it was fair. It wasn't the other side that had to prove it was unfair. And then the second thing is what goes into that assessment. It's sort of a combination of what was the process that gave rise to this pay package? Did it look like and kind of walk like and smell like and sound like an arm's length negotiation? Or was there something a little bit more sort of a you know, fait accompli about it? And then the second part of it is just you know, compare the size of this package to what would be sort of substantively what you'd expect to come out of it. And on that process part, you know, a bunch of the stuff that we've been talking about, the fact that Musk is very, very close to many of the of the board members, one of whom even when asked about his relationship with Mr. Musk broke down in tears and deposition because of his gratitude towards Mr. Musk, which is, you know, touching on one level, but on another level, that's not necessarily the type of uh, person you want guarding the gate of executive compensation against this charismatic. And so the process stuff, just didn't seem to be there much at all. And then when it came to trying to compare how fair his compensation package was to others, this is literally a compensation package that has no comparison. It's bigger than anything we've ever seen. It's you know, multitudes larger than the median CEO pay package. Other kind of so-called superstar CEOs like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, they don't even take a salary. They just basically benefit only to the extent that the stock goes up in value. So when it came down to brass tacks, 
Mr. Musk's case kind of got backed into this corner of having to show that, you know, these numbers are fair and they made a good effort of it. They tried to say, well, look, at the time it was entered into in 2018, you know, this was a highly incentivized contract and a bunch of these hurdles, they may never you know, get triggered. And, and it was really, really a highly speculative thing that was going to pay off big, but only if kind of outsized promises came true. And the chancellor wasn't buying that. In fact, of the 12 different layers of this contract, three of the first hurdles were almost certain to occur. And they knew that at the time that they signed the deal. So at the end of the day, she said, there's just not enough here for me to conclude that you have shown that a compensation package of this magnitude is on its price terms fair, particularly compared to what other people earn out. And that was the end of the show. I mean, it took 200 pages to get there, but that was the end of the show. So he will probably appeal to the Delaware Supreme Court. What are his chances on appeal? Well, you know, they're not zero. And I think that there are a couple of things that he can probably take up. I mean, he's going to probably try to attack every one of these junctures of her opinion. And, you know, you can sort of tell from the opinion that Chancellor McCormick is aware of it. And that's why she's pretty meticulous at each juncture. It's conceivable that he'll, you know, sort of go after this question of whether he was a controller or not. I don't really like his odds on that that much because this is a highly fact-intensive inquiry. And um, most of this opinion is development of findings of fact. Usually the trial court judges get a lot of deference on that. And I expect that she's going to get deference on it as well. Moreover, I think, you know, like I said, like almost any layperson would think, yeah, of course, Mr. Musk controls what happens at Tesla as well as many other companies. So I don't think that that is going to be as successful if he takes it to, to the Delaware Supreme Court, which I'm sure he'll try. You know, maybe some of the other things may be a little bit more successful. Possibly they can put some dents in the conclusion that the pay package was unfair, that it was so highly incentivized that, you know, maybe this is just hindsight bias. The fact that Tesla actually met all these hurdles kind of looks obvious when you look backwards in time, but it couldn't have been obvious looking forward in time. And so there might be a little bit that they can do there. I think where Musk's team might have the most leverage here is to say, okay, well, look, if you're invalidating my contract, saying I get nothing, it's not the same as saying I didn't create value for this company. It's just saying that the contract, you're going to rescind it and you can't use the contract. But as a general matter, there's an area of law called restitution that basically says, you know, if you create something of value for someone else and they know you're expecting compensation for it and there's no other mechanism to do it, like in this case, the contract got canceled, you can, you know, allege or even file a lawsuit saying, I want to claim restitution. And so that may be one of the things that also goes up to to the Supreme Court saying, you know, should he get the chance to try to prove what the fair value of what he did do for Tesla was? If this contract was unfair, is there a smaller number that would be fair? And then he could at least get that. Chancellor McCormick actually even takes on that question in opinion. At the very end of the opinion, she says, look, in principle, I could revert back to like, what, what's the fair value of what he should have gotten? But the defendants never even tried to present evidence about that. They were all in on there's no liability, no liability, no liability. And therefore, they never really even made a case on what the fair versus the unfair component of his compensation package was. And you can kind of understand why they didn't, right? Like if you're starting to do that as the defendant, it's almost like you've given up on uh, trying to show that you know the whole thing was fair. And so they shied away probably for understandable reasons. And they might say, hey, you know, Delaware Supreme Court, you should at least give us a chance to 
make that claim and remand this for a more sort of fulsome analysis of of not only the rescission part of the contract, but he should get restitution for the benefits that he's conferred. And that's a possibility. It would be changing the nature of the remedy, and therefore the Supreme Court would have to say that the trial court, the Chancellor McCormick, just she fashioned her remedy in an incomplete way. There's a pretty high hurdle to do that as well, um, but at least it's a possibility. There's one other angle here, June, which is restitution is itself a lawsuit that you could file. So there's also an outside chance that independent of filing an appeal, Elon Musk might turn around and sue Tesla for restitution. (laughs) It would probably land in front of Chancellor McCormick. And then, you know, the directors and the other, you know, uh, folks in in, in charge of Tesla that had been sitting on the same side of the table, table with him during this litigation are now adverse parties. And one could imagine that that might be a strategy as well, one that the board might decide later on that they're going to settle that and settle it for, I don't know, stock options valued at, say, $48 billion or something like that. You know, that decision itself might attract a lawsuit. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. A Delaware judge has ruled that Elon Musk is not entitled to the landmark compensation package awarded by Tesla's board of directors, potentially worth more than $55 billion. The shareholder lawsuit argued that the compensation package should be voided because it was dictated by Musk and was the product of sham negotiations with directors who were not independent of him. We've discussed before that Musk has been pressuring Tesla's board to arrange another massive stock award for him. And now you have questions about the board's independence. So what happens? Do they negotiate a new pay package for him? I mean, I think they have to at this stage. They have to figure out, okay, what's our our package going to look like now going forward with the caveat in mind that we're sitting on this 200-page opinion that said, here's a model of how not to do a pay package, right? So uh, so at, at this point, they're under even more scrutiny and more constraints than they would have been before this opinion. And just a repeat of the, of the 2018 executive compensation package is almost certain to draw attention. So, you know, I think 
when they're trying to figure out what is this next compensation package going to look like, I, I think they want to be sure that they have truly independent board members. Uh, there's been some turnover on the board, and I think they're, you know, they may want to make sure that they've got that in place, and that, that they also then also go out to the, to the stockholders to vote to approve that transaction. That's going to give them a lot more protection should, they, should um, this new package ever get litigated. And, you know, I think on some level, the hindsight lesson here is that, you know, these burdens matter and using the right kind of processes can give you a lot of protection. Um, if you're a potential defendant in these cases, um, it seems like the processes were treated, at least in the 2018 pay package, in a little bit more of a cavalier way than uh, they, they would confront the same problem in 2024. Do you think that this is a warning to other companies and CEOs about how they negotiate their pay packages? I think on some level it is. Pay packages have always been a little bit strange because, you know, companies and the boards and the executives have to set the compensation of boards and executives. And so how do you even do that in a way that runs, you know, on the on the permissive side of, of self-interest? I think, uh, you know, every once in a while we get a big compensation case in Delaware. This is about as big as they get. Uh, the other thing that's going to be kind of interesting here is for both compensation cases and not, um, what role did Musk's sort of charismatic, the chancellor uses the term superstar CEO status have um, in affecting the outcome of this case? And I think on one level, it clearly did, that uh, that he was deemed to be a controller of the company in large part because he is such a sort of a iconic and charismatic person that a bunch of stockholders and a bunch of directors are, are just kind of like want to please him. And, and that's the type of a situation that is more likely to give rise, certainly after this case, to a finding that, yeah, this is a controller and therefore under this heightened degree of uh, of scrutiny under Delaware law. I don't know. I guess you could be a little bit cynical about it and say this is like a charisma tax on CEOs who, you know, have that, that added element that might cause them to be, you know, particularly persuasive when they want shareholders and the board to do something for them, as opposed to the more sort of workaday, boring CEOs who don't end up getting leveled the charisma tax. Delaware, as you know, the corporate home to almost 70 percent of the Fortune 500 companies Shortly after the judge voided his pay package, Musk posted, never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. Do you think this will have any ramifications for Delaware as a corporate home? Yeah, we'll see. Um, if you're asking whether where I'm betting my money, June, I would not be uh, rushing the exits on Delaware for a whole <laughs> bunch of different reasons. It's conceivable, by the way, that Tesla itself might decide to reincorporate in Nevada or maybe Texas. Uh, Nevada is kind of well known as a place where the the protective um, cloak for you know CEOs and directors is a little bit thicker than it is in Delaware. Though it's plenty thick already in Delaware, it, it didn't survive this onslaught. So it's conceivable that that Tesla itself might incorporate a decision that could attract a lawsuit of its own. Are they reincorporating for selfish reasons or for the good of the company? But Delaware is not just 
kind of popular. As you noted, it is it is the place of incorporation for you know over two thirds of the of the Fortune 500. Most companies incorporate in Delaware, and there's reason for it is that this is like kind of the one state court system that has a completely separate set of courts that are experts in business law, that are well known experts in business law, that have consistent jurisprudence. It isn't like you're playing judicial roulette like you would with a state court judge in another area. And that's large part because Delaware has maintained this specific set of judges that have expertise, mainly in corporate law and business law sorts of settings. That's generally not going to be the case. You go out into a random California civil court um, in which the judge is you know, balancing all kinds of different things. You're not going to have the same sort of consistency. And so I think that's a hard thing to compete on. Uh, and to do it, you actually have to have the right personnel in place. Uh, and I'd also add to it that most lawyers out there, um, including just about every student I've ever taught in corporate law, they'll get a little bit of New York corporate law. They'll get a little bit of California corporate law, but they will get a lot of Delaware corporate law. So most of the practicing corporate lawyers, and I would venture to say bankers out there, they're highly familiar with the landmarks in Delaware corporate law. And once you're asking people to, you know, hand over a lot of money to you, um, and you don't really know how Nevada law works or how it will work because it's not as developed or Texas law, that's asking those investors to take a little bit of a roulette wheel spin. And that may be um, not the best way to raise money. So maybe, maybe we're going to see some action on the incorporation market. But I'm not so sure that uh, when Mr. Musk looks behind him to see the parade of other companies reincorporating out of Delaware, that line is going to be all that long. What is it that Nevada, the law offers more protections against investor suits? Is that what the attraction is? Correct. One of the things that Nevada kind of advertises itself as doing is as 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 creating more protections for corporate fiduciaries like officers and directors, CEOs, and things like that, um, and and actually allowing. Um, the waiver of many of those types of liabilities in a way that are not generally allowed in other states, including Delaware. So, uh, so the idea, and you know, and, and Nevada has for years kind of advertised, "Come incorporate in Nevada, and you'll never get sued." Type of type of advertisements, and so uh, so that that can look attractive to a corporate fiduciary, particularly one licking his wounds at a big, you know, multi-billion dollar out, you know, swing in an outcome. Um, but I'll also say that if you are someone who's trying to raise money from investors um, and saying, yeah, you should just give me a lot of your money because I'm going to incorporate in a state in which you never can sue me for, say, pilfering that money or misusing that money, it may be harder to raise that capital to begin with. So there's this kind of interesting trade-off that um, the most lax area or the most lax jurisdiction for um, for liability may not necessarily attract the investment dollars because the people that are basically sort of forking over their hard-earned cash to you want to make sure that you're also going to be held to account for on real standards as opposed to, you know, vaporware that disappears as soon as you have a complaint. And Eric, one last question on the Musk case. Was there any sort of middle ground the judge could have taken? 
you know, in some ways the the litigation strategy kind of forced this thing to be, you know, either a massive win for the plaintiffs or a massive win for the defendants. It was really hard to conjure up a Solomonic middle ground outcome the way that the case was sort of presented to Chancellor McCormick. And so now, you know, I could see that, you know, Mr. Musk and maybe even the plaintiff's attorneys are going to sort of realize, okay, look, there's going to be a lot more fighting downstream. Maybe we can figure out some Solomonic way to to take this opinion and turn it into an outcome that everyone can live with. But that's going to take some doing from both sides if that's going to happen. Well, this decision was certainly a long time coming, but well worth talking about. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.